Welcome to the All Creation Podcast. In this episode, we're talking with Reverend Matthew Seardall, Senior Pastor at Shepherd of the Hills Presbyterian Church in Lakewood, Colorado, co-founder of Seminary of the Wild, and founder of Church of Lost Walls. He is one of the most innovative Christian leaders in America today, describing himself as an artist of the soul. Matt has studied ancient Christian rites of initiation, psychology, and spirituality. He studied at the Animus Valley Institute and is also a speaker and wilderness guide. Matt, I am so excited to have you here and get to talk with you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, pleasure's all mine. I'm really excited. Awesome. Thank you. I want to start with this. Um, well, first of all, just setting the stage a little bit, we're talking about apocalypse in this issue of all creation and trying to understand what it is and how these, these uh, two ideas of the end of all things in the sort of popular understanding of apocalypse and also the more traditional Christian text meaning of apocalypsis around the idea of a great uncovering or a great unveiling of knowledge, how these things play into your understanding of where we are in the world today, where Christian culture is and, and what kind of things we should be doing. The first thing I, I've been thinking about is apocalypse. You know, when, often when we talk about it in, in common parlance or culture as a cultural term, we think of it as the end, end of the world or we talk about it as the end of the world. But every ending is also a beginning. And so in some ways, apocalypse is really about the beginning of the world as well. It's, it's almost like a return to in the beginning. Um, so there's a sense in apocalypse that what's revealed is a story of the world as it should be. The story of the world as it was always intended to be. And that is confrontational with whatever world order, with whatever system is established as the dominant paradigm. And so the travail that we often associate with apocalypse is unraveling, and it's also a new beginning. It's a, it's a reemergence of something that had been hidden or not attended to. So um, that's one way of thinking about uh, apocalypse. And when I think of lifting the veil as sort of that that word means lifting, lifting the veil, seeing behind the veil. Part of it is associated with this like ancient Hebrew understanding um, of, of veiled, this veiled relationship between the holy and the mundane, the sacred and the mundane, which is common probably in all religious traditions. If you look at some of the anthropologists that have studied various peoples throughout the world. And veil in that particular cultural context would have been a pretty well-known image, a pretty easily understood image. So it sort of harkens to like this sense of uh, Moses, actually, who used to veil his face to hide the Shekinah, the, the glory of the deity, mm. and to keep the people from, uh, you know, being sort of consumed by this holiness in some ways. And there's this also wonderful passage in the in the Christian tradition from some of Paul's teachings that talks about how the dominant culture's minds are veiled 
to reality, capital R reality, you could say. This is a paraphrase, of course. So that we're, we're living in a time and an age where our minds are veiled. And in the language of, of, of Paul, he says, blinded by the God of this age, you know, little g God, right? So already in the first century, there's this understanding, which of course was dominated by the Roman Empire and its expansionist policies of uh, taking over territories and lands. Already in this age, we see this sense that the god of this age, which is mammon, you could say the mammon system, which is very much reminiscent of various uh, periods of empire and dominator, uh, what Rian Eisler calls kind of a dominator paradigm of how we relate to the world, that something about this is intrinsically, inherently uh, suicidal for our species, ecocidal for our planet, and completely unsustainable and un untenable. And so um, that's a bit of the background on this lifting the, the veil, a, a bit of the background on the sense of apocalypse. It wasn't necessarily this doomsday end of all things, you know, that the universe blows up or disappears. It was really meant to be understood in this broader context of a reckoning with the practices and destructive habits of the dominant culture with the original intention of the divine for humanity within the context of how we relate to earth how we relate to our planet so um, it's it is fundamentally based in a relationship with natural balance of of um you might say the life support system and, and yeah. everything that includes yeah yeah that's that's a great way of putting it and the other would be to say that when you look at the apocalyptic literature in the hebrew and judeo-christian tradition and there's apocalyptic literature of course in the hindu scriptures and in hindu mythology one of the things that's central to apocalyptic literature is its mythic imagery it's a way of storytelling that's actually rooted in myth and one of the reasons i think this is significant being somebody who um, absolutely loves myth is myth comes from pre-scientific worldview that is united with within a unified cosmos it, it gives us a sense of storied relationship to our place in the cosmos as a species and every good myth every <laughs> uh, ancient myth especially pre uh, neolithic has a place for the animal and for the male and for the female and for the more than human world in the divine image itself. So myth gives us a proper way of ordering and relating to the world that is not only life sustaining, but it's life enhancing. Mm -hmm. it, it, um, our future and, our, and, the, and the beginning, you could say, in the beginning, those two are connected intimately. And so what you could say that 
part of what gets a dominant society in a lot of trouble is when we have become split from those original myths that connected us with, with the world. And uh, Carl Jung maybe said it best when he said, we're living in an age between myths. And um, when we become severed from that, those original stories, we lose our sense of identity, our sense of belonging, and our sense of what the world actually is. And it makes it much easier to kind of create a dom dominator relationship or one of that's based in exploitation. Yeah, I want to jump in and ask something really occurred to me yesterday, and I'm going to send you this video after our, our talk here. It was uh, a short interview with John Trudell, the Native American activist. He talks about the indigenous American view or the indigenous person's view, even in a broad sense. In, a, in the way that to me, you could sum up as saying it's, it's living inside a connectedness paradigm. And our paradigm here today in the, in the developed world, we are the developed world of peoples, they are the indigenous peoples, is that we just, as he says, we've had that memory erased through the sort of uh, being born into a technological culture and industrial culture of the last couple hundred years. So I'm curious what you think about that. And I'm also um, wanted to ask a practical question about how you just described the importance of myth that it is in a sense like a parabolizing of these difficult to make concrete concepts. So in other words, you're, you're uh, use myth. I'm asking if this is correct, if this is a good practical definition. Myth is used to make the difficult to conceive relatable. And then once you lose a relationship with this sort of difficult, intangible connectedness, then you lose that relationship and things keep going in a direction that's not about connectedness. So I'm curious if that kind of resonates with you and if that's yeah. also a, a fair practical definition of how myth is just a, a utility. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I think um, James Hillman, j just to paraphrase James Hillman, he said something like, in order to love, we must personify. And I think, I think myth gets at, myth is speaking in the language of truth, not necessarily fact in, in, in sort of the uh, post-scientific era way of understanding reality, but it gets to the underlying living heart of reality precisely in that, that sense that I think you, you said of the paradigm of, of connectedness, that the paradigm of living in a story that itself has created us in some ways. Sean Kane, a professor up in Washington, has this book called The Wisdom of the Myth Tellers. And he talks about how myths weren't necessarily, they're, they're not like fables, they're not necessarily like prefabricated stories to, to convey a kind of a moral lesson. That in some ways, some of the earliest tribes and indigenous folks received, and there's that word revelation, you know, again, but sort of received the story from the land itself, from the more than human world that, you know, was sort of translated into human words that gave them a sense of who they are and what their place was in a particular 
watershed or a particular landscape or land landform. And um, it's a little bit of what the aboriginals or aboriginal people call, you know, the dreaming. It, it's this participatory experiential paradigm of, like you said, paradigm of connectedness where the world itself has meaning and has its own language in a sense. And part of what good myth does is it decentralizes the human venture, the human project. And sometimes we talk about the American myth or manifest destiny or, or capitalism or whatever our quote unquote myths are. That's our a little, kind, little kind G gods are. Yeah. Little G gods. Yep. And, um, there's this way that um, we, we've been severed fr from that, that sort of worldview that more animistic cultures participated in. Thomas Berry says we've been torn out of a living universe that we're no longer oriented by the cosmos. And so in that gap, in that tear, something's got to fill it. And for dominant cultures, empires, Western culture, what filled it was humanity was uh, we became anthropocentric in our, our, our view of the universe. And um, Thomas Berry also says it's sort of like we've become, and this might not be politically correct, but at the time he said we, we've sort of become autistic in our relationship with the natural world, that, that we've sort of cut off that feeling sense and that way of, of relating. He meant yeah. according to the clinical definition of autism yes, at the time. The clinical yeah. definition at the time. <laughs> well, so okay, let's come let's come back to this idea. What is the world like if we make this next, I would say, advancement in our identity? Mm -hmm. Part of the exercise of the podcast, I think, should always be to say, okay, so we know a lot of things are wrong. What does it feel like and look like if it's right? You know, what is yeah, our solution yeah. actually going to be? Yeah, that's a that's a great um, question. I guess the short answer would be I, I have no clue, right? Uh, I, I guess the short answer would be, um, you know, we're we're all kind of feeling forward into this liminal, uh, unknown territory of of well, what does it mean to be human, and what is the Earth actually, and what is um, is there a, an inherent destiny? Is there something that we can discover in the depths of our own psyche, perhaps, or in the depths of the world itself that gives us the story, the sense of destiny, the, the uh, tools to be able to transform, you know, that, that sort of uh, phrase, ecological metanoia, right? Um, sometimes attributed to Pope Francis or something like that, but this idea that metanoia originally meaning going into the larger mind would be something like going into the larger mind of, of the world, uh, of the greater ecology than simply our own ego or our own human capacity or understanding. So I, I, where I find hope for the future, I guess, I guess I could say is we have all been created with these astonishing capacities for relating to the world and for adapting and for innovation that somehow we, you know, we all play some mysterious role in this great drama that continues to unfold of 
whether you call it the principle of emergence or understanding Christ from, from the Christian tradition, from an evolutionary standpoint, something like that, that perhaps we are going somewhere. And one of those capacities for me that, that I think is really significant is what one of my mentors, Bill Plotkin and, and his partner, Janine Haugen, have called uh, the deep imagination. And that was some of that concept of the deep imagination also came from Henry Corbus, who talks about the imaginal world, actually, that the, the world itself has different capacities and dimensions than, than just inert matter that we're usually not kind of aware of, but that humans are designed to be forward thinking out of all other species, that we have this capacity for imagine, imagination, that we have the capacity to imagine new futures, different futures, different possibilities. I love and that so, idea. Um, it seems to me that when we talk about apocalypse, we're also talking about awakening. We're talking about new visions. You know, I, uh, one of my favorite biblical texts would be from the prophet Joel that says you're young men will have visions and your old people will dream dreams and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and and that there's this kind of collective emergence happening and that it's not primarily coming from ourselves. It's not primarily coming from our own education or background, but that it's maybe even coming from earth, that our relationship is so interconnected because we did emerge from this whether you want to say Gaia or this this great living planet, that we have this this deep connection through the imagination. So, I, I say all that to say back back to myth, back to um, imagination, and back primarily to love, which would be that paradigm of connectedness, right? That those are really the the source and the ground for any real change for any comprehensive transformation on a cultural level or an institutional level. And so we have many of the technologies and the abilities to make big change, but unless it's rooted and sourced in that deep imaginal connection to the, the planet, which the mystics and revolutionaries have, have always, you know, artists and poets and all these sorts of folks have always been in touch with, that that needs to be the source of this awakening, this collective awakening, this change. And so that that's what makes me really passionate and excited and moving towards more of a partnership society where we, we have to dismantle the old paradigm of competition and a worldview that supports a survival of the fittest as competition only mentality and more of a partnership cooperation mentality between the different institutions of government, of religious institutions. Um, and these in institutions still, I think, will have a, a purpose, a future, but the, the structures of how they function are going to have to unravel and completely change. And, and one of the metaphors uh, that, that I think of the work of Brazelton, the psychologist Brazelton and touch points and how, how um, humans develop. And, and if you look at 
the example is adolescence, right? <laughs> uh, when, when we uh, develop as humans from children through that tumultuous, crazy period of adolescence that makes parents pull out their hair and, and nobody knows what to do until they become adults, or, you know, until we become adults, air quotes on what <laughs> that actually means. Um, older. But, <laughs> older, older adolescents. But that there is really a collapse in the old way that we have functioned so that we can be re rewired on a new level of development. That, that that's really what that passage of adolescence is as we move from a kind of childlike operations and way of, of being in the world into more of an adult-like way of being in the world. And so back to apocalypse, I think it's an evolutionary necessity actually that we pass through this time of apocalypse and unraveling so so that we can be rewired on a new level of functioning as a human society and so we need spaces for that to happen for that unraveling to happen and for me that's what seminary of the wild really is seminary of the wild is is sort of a non-institutional container of participation community and direct experience to help people disentangle from the old paradigm of um, you know a patriarchal or dominant structure of religious belief and our cultural ways through direct experience through through reframing and reconnecting with the natural world in the way that our ancestors have for thousands of years that we can relearn how to reconnect with the natural world that we can relearn how to listen and communicate with the natural world that we can relearn who we actually are as individuals and as a species through rewilding the self actually so it's practices of cultivating wholeness and self-healing that can help us dis, uh, disentangle and disidentify from some of the old structures as we individuate and also give us resources for living more authentically and more fully in our human culture and in, in our jobs and roles and things like that and actually work for change and transformation at an individual and cultural level where we're going to find resistance, uh, huge amounts of resistance. So, so the practices of wholeness are really geared towards becoming who we need to be in the world so that we can stand against that resistance and that we can work for, for change and also help us discover something like our own personal myth, you could say, our, our, our own as David White says, the truth at the center of the image we were born with, our, our own inner genius, as Michael Mead would say, our own deep purpose so that when we step into a religious role in a church or, or when we work for ecological change or, or action, that it's coming from a place that's really deeply resourced and, and connected, something like that, you know. So the, those kinds of spaces to help 
uh, during this time of apocalypse, I guess you could say, to, to help that <laughs> unraveling occur and to help some of those new emergent and innovative things emerge, you know, in our lives as, as people are going to be really important in the next several decades as the paradigm starts to shift. Also with, you know, I think sustainability, the, the jury's still out on, do we have enough time to, to make the, the massive changes we need to, you know, and, and I'm not an expert, but by any means on. on the interesting thing about, about that sort of position that a lot of people take is like, so what you're saying is it's not worth it. You know, like how could anybody know what the future brings? Every financial advisor will tell you past results don't indicate future results. So get in touch with what you're investing in and, and give it your best shot. And lo and behold, you know, a lot of people do pretty well from that strategy. So it's, it's odd to me that we are in a, a culture that's like always looking for excuses to delay action. You know, China is a, still building coal plants. What are you going to do about that? It's like what we're doing is what we're going to do about that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and yeah. we, what we should be doing is trying to do the best we can possibly do. And this is something I, I really had instilled in me from growing up in a church environment. The idea was, hey, how can we help? What's the best outcome we can bring here? So this is one of the reasons I've sort of turned back to trying to connect to religious leaders. I think the optimism mm -hmm. and the, you know, what's called fellowship in religious culture or in Christian culture is one of the roots of getting people to, as you said, disidentify with all of the negative thoughts that are surrounding us in our current cultural paradigm of iPhone driven news feeds that are just, you know, unbelievably, um, if it bleeds, it leads oriented and our politics and, you know, our entertainment. And there's so many things that encourage people to see the worst outcome and give up. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, leaders like you are saying, hang on, let's go. And as you said, connect at a deeply in a deeply resourced way mm -hmm. and then move forward. Yeah, that's great. I, it seems to me that, um, I mean, love, there's that sentiment like we'll only work we'll only really work to save that which we love you know sort of idea and if love if love is the goal it changes the whole nature of the equation in some ways right yeah. it's like loving our planet and loving um the diverse beings that inhabit our planet that we were designed to be in relationship with is an end and a goal in and of itself. And if we can live from that place, real magic can happen. Real shifts, I think, can start to happen for people. I think so many people out there, they're just tired. They're tired of this, this, this old way of being that just is clearly no longer working and clearly no longer life-giving on almost every level and just, but so, so that's where our relationship, our direct specific particular relationship with the earth and not just the earth with the landscape on which we live and not just the landscape, but each particular being and not just each particular being, but this particular being 
sounds so simple and maybe sentimental to some people, but it's so the opposite. deep and so necessary. Yeah. So opposite. You know, another aspect of this that I, I think we have a lot of commonality in my sense of um, a lot of what you were just talking about, this idea of working for change by recognizing and connecting to your own inner genius and your um, recognition that the truth is at the center of your being, that this is also a, a physical process and uh, physical unburdening in a sense that a lot of people carry psychological pain from past traumas and that is held in their body. And our, you know, I think we're encouraged to disconnect from nature at every step of our lives. People don't take mm -hmm. off their shoes. People don't walk on the grass. People don't mm -hmm. go out and listen to the birds or enjoy the uh, sensory bliss that is having sunlight on your skin and the wind, a breeze blowing over and feeling the hair on your arms move. You know, these incredible moments of self-realization in a sense that can come from being in these more natural settings, Let's keep it simple for now. I think the terminology that you use is really powerful and also, um, you know, advanced in many ways. So I wanted to ask you to kind of break, uh, you know, short definitions on a few of these, sure. these things that I've written down. Yeah. So let's start with the phrase, the more than human world. What does that mean? The other living members, is that biodiversity or, or what does that sort of mean? More than human world? Yeah. Um, could mean a lot of things. It, it certainly means the non-human beings, but also our watershed, also the landforms, also every last drop on this planet, whether we recognize it as animate or inanimate, it is a posture of understanding that all beings are animate in some ways. All beings, if you want to look at, uh, you know, some of the most modern things in the realm of physics and quanta and all that kind of stuff. But it's this idea that the relationship itself is intensely personal, right? It's intensely personal and in that we're not the only animate sentient beings on the planet and we're not the only ones with wisdom or with speech or, or anything else. Somebody once said, as children, we're all animists, actually, <laughs> as little children, you know, we all have this I thou way of personifying and relating to the the animals from our pets to, you know, the, the animals we encounter when we go for a stroll in the woods. Um, that we're designed actually to live in relationship like that. And we forget that because we get it schooled out of us from a very early age. So that's kind of what I mean by the, the more than human world is kind of that mystery. And, and can you, uh, you mentioned that we're all animists. What does that term really relate to? Is that a spirituality? Is that this animated spirit in, in the world, like a, a biological creature? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I, I guess um, it's a more general way of incorporating the centuries and millennia of human development and humanity's way of relating to the world that shifted with really the kind of the scientific and post-scientific paradigm, which would be to say that everything has in the Hebrew conception, everything has the breath of life, that 
humans uh, received the breath of life, but Genesis also says so did all the animals and trees and everything else that that sense of the breath also means soul that there's some there's some sort of selfhood that the rest of the world shares and that's a really beautiful concept for me that everything has a self in, in some ways everything has its own autonomy its, its own reason for being that doesn't need to be conferred by by us as humans right it kind of levels the hierarchical playing field from the great chain of being where we're sitting at the top of the ladder feeling fat and happy like mac the turtle from uh <laughs> you know from um dr seuss but you know we're, we're not up here we're, we're a part of this web we're, we're a part of this web of 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 aliveness and selfhood and beauty and intelligence and communication and and we're just starting to become open to the world as mystery again there's there's a new enchantment a re-enchantment of the world that's happening right now which is absolutely beautiful it's it's absolutely necessary yeah so that that's kind of what i mean by the, the more than human world is is that sort of mindset and an animist would have that mindset, not, not necessarily a religion, although many tribes and religions have an animist worldview, but it's more of that way of relating to the world as if everything is alive. That's a beautiful idea. And I I think um, very important to me as well, but, but also implicitly then includes sacredness for probably most or all animists. Yes. That's a good word, sacred or or the holy, something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, one more term that you use a lot that I, I have a better understanding of after reading some of your recent writings, but I think you used it early on in this talk, and I think it's extremely thematically prevalent in you know how you see where we are is this liminal word. Can you talk about that? And, and maybe in the paradigm of uh, kind of maybe a big historical paradigm, could be relating to the, the story of Christianity or the story of life on earth or the story of how we have to deal with today's social problems. You know, there's a lot of different overlapping ways to look at the liminal phase. Yeah, yeah, yeah great. Yeah. Uh, liminal comes from the Latin limen or limen. It's, it's sort of the stone on the ground in, the, in a doorway. It's the, it's the threshold that one crosses when they pass through a door transitional space and it's sort of the already but not yet idea of the coming of christ in the christian tradition and the second coming the parousia so jesus you could say in the christian tradition inaugurated this liminal age which was called the he referred to as the kingdom right and that usually these liminal periods happen during times of great upheaval, social change, technological change, you know, something like that. And so what's important to think about is living in this liminal space where we're not here and we're not there. We're, we're not who we used to be, but we're not quite who we are to become. Back to the adolescent metaphor. Back to the adolescent metaphor, yeah. Um, 
that, that it's really uncomfortable space. It's usually times of great change. And I feel like our age right now is unique in the sense of change is happening on every single level and it's global and technology has amplified the speed of the changes that we're experiencing and the speed of information and, and our awareness. And, and yet as, as humans, it, you know, there, there's, there's a way that we digest, (laughs) digest that information and understand that change. And it can be really disorienting. So liminal time and liminal space is really disorienting. That's one of the characteristics of it. Um, Usually the status changes, you know, so it's sort of like we all enter into a period where the playing field has been leveled. Another sign of liminal space would be no one's the authority anymore. (laughs) Uh, Mm. But there's more of a, like you said, partnership in the sense of decision-making and a Know, yeah. A, a... yeah, yeah, partnership, and and we're all beyond our limits in in some ways, and so we can bring together our our learnings and our our wisdom and our discoveries, but we don't know what's next. We don't know, we don't actually really know where we're going as as a society or, or as a culture. So, the, you know, air quotes the myth of the expert, you know, is suspect. But it also creates unimagined possibilities. You know, it, it, it creates a sense that we're alive and the time is now and we're here together. And what are we going to do with our one, <laughs> one wild and precious life as Mary Oliver poses it? And, and liminal space and time is always pregnant for transformation, for real change. I always like to kind of like look back on different periods that went through these big upheavals and and changes too. And so for me, again, that's kind of why the gospels and the the first century from a a Christian perspective or from a church perspective is really important because that was a big liminal age in human history as well. And there's, there's been plenty others uh, places that we can look for wisdom and guidance as well. Yeah. It's interesting to think of the Gospels as this liminal time and not knowing uh, where our destination is or sort of where we're going culturally and societally and also industrialization in the same kind of sense that we keep trying to do the right thing, you know, and then we, uh, we, we apparently don't have, I think, enough of a mental model about what the right thing really is. And so we're still in this trying to uh, illuminate it place. And so with that maybe in mind, I want to ask you one last question. And this will be me projecting very simplified version of how I hear kind of the uh, the antidote to the bad apocalypse to the, the yeah, idea that yeah. everything collapses. And that might be that this thing that you said that m- people broad, broad care, uh, category, people are living from a deeply resourced connectedness or in a, in a deeply resourced connectedness. That is a critical turn, that there are, there's a different paradigm of maybe fears and insecurities, but also a different paradigm of social standards and how you recognize 
the genius in your neighbor or the uh, the truth at the center of yourself that that we've made the connection and you know the sort of the namaste concept in a sense that you see the light in yourself you see it in others and not just more people but most people have been able to overcome their traumas their other things that are that are limiting them their their blindness disconnectedness mm -hmm. yeah that's great I, I i would also i'm also really curious about sharing and that you you mentioned community before that sense of koinonia which is how, how we relate with with one another how we view ownership which as a word doesn't show up in traditional or indigenous cultures that concept of ownership land resources and and i always kind of come back to the feeding of the five thousand sort of idea of you know what does it look like to share resources and to to use resources as if they were not ours in a culture that is so bent on ownership and amassing more things and consumerism and as a positive spin i would say what a beautiful powerful opportunity to reimagine what it might look like to have a sharing paradigm actually and how that might reconfigure i mean it would be certainly a challenge to capitalism and, and to a lot of the corporations but it would be far less wasteful so it's kind of that stewardship sharing koinonia community sort of paradigm that i think is not only life sustaining but can also move towards being life enhancing actually i love that point life enhancing and i want to i think it's a really good note to end on as well i'd like to come back to that in a future podcast yeah yeah that, yeah you know the ways that we benefit on an individual level and and broader levels from this kind of engagement so i don't know if you have any final words but otherwise i'll sort of do the official wrap-up thing yeah i ju just say it's been really fun to see you and you too i'm really glad to see that you're doing this work in this podcast and and uh the work that you're doing with all creation and and other spheres too is so vital. So I feel very blessed to know you. So thank you. I do too. Thanks to Carmen Rutzloff for connecting us five yeah. years ago or so around 2016. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, thank you for the work you're doing and, and really pioneering and leading on. I really want to also talk more about Seminary of the Wild and people can learn more about your projects by going to seminaryofthewild.org. Is that right? dot com dot com seminary of the wild dot com yeah okay and then that is a place where generally speaking clergy can go to get deeper into this kind of stuff we're talking about yeah clergy and we have professors and we have therapists we have people that are in the ecological movement and wild church pastors and uh you know whole kind of whole spectrum but it's definitely a place for clergy as well Okay, yeah. great. And then churchoflostwalls.org, is that right? That's right. Yep. And that's my own little local community here in the front range of Colorado. That's sort of your wild church yes. project. All right, great. Well, thank you, Matt. So thank very, you. very much. Yeah. So great to see you, Chris. Let's connect soon. We've been talking with Reverend Matt Seardall, senior pastor at Shepherd of the Hills Presbyterian in Lakewood, Colorado. 
co-founder of seminaryofthewild.com and founder of churchoflostwalls.org. Thanks, Matt.